The Superpower Mamas channel is brought to you by Superpower Experts. Visit superpowerexperts.com to join the superpower universe and unlock your superpowers today. You're listening to Superpower Mamas, reclaiming the sacred journey of motherhood with Tatiana Berende. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Superpower Mamas podcast show. I'm your host, Tatiana Berende, and I am really excited today. We have two guests, so this is juicy. It's been a while since we've done that. Um, my guests today are Rachel Katz and Helen Shui Hadani, and we are here to be discussing fostering emotional intelligence in pandemic-era children, really in all children, but I'm super interested in how the pandemic has impacted that in our children. And so we're going to dive a little bit into that for those of you who are parenting in this time and have noticed the difference. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about Rachel and Helen before we dive in today. Rachel Katz is an expert in child development with a focus on social and emotional learning. She's devoted her entire career teaching children social and emotional learning and to helping parents and teachers foster and support emotional development in children of all backgrounds. Her new book is titled The Emotionally Intelligent Child, Effective Strategies for Raising Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids, and features many of her strategies, including the MIND framework, which I'm sure we will talk about today. Rachel's other experiences include elementary teacher, TV show creator, curriculum writer, and trainer of educators, parents, and students. And Helen Shui Hadani is currently a fellow at the Brookings Institution, where she conducts policy-focused research on the benefits of playful learning in both formal and informal contexts. Prior to joining Brookings, Dr. Hadani served as the director of research at the Bay Area Discovery Museum, where she guided program and exhibit development. An expert in early childhood and creativity development, she has more than 20 years of experience in research and education settings and has worked with toy media and technology companies, including Disney, Sesame Workshop, Apple, Lego, Fisher-Price, and Mattel. Helen holds a BA in cognitive science from the University of Rochester and a doctorate in psychology from Stanford. And I am just so grateful to have both of you here with us today. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So um, no one is exempt from our first question, which I will ask each of you in turn, maybe starting with Rachel, since I read your bio first. Rachel, what would you consider your superpowers in the realm of child development to be? Huh. Um, I guess my superpower is maybe I would say it's patience um, where I just, I love spending time with children and I, I, for some reason, you know, they calm me down. They kind of give me the patience that I need to then observe them and think about them um, so and to be with them and teach me, and then I can go on to create content for kids, you know, for kids for a wider audience than the ones that I'm just working with. So I would say that's a superpower is patience. Mm-hmm. I would say being able to create content for children is a superpower too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take, I'll have two. <laughs> Great. Uh, I think we all have many. 
<laughs> and how about you, Helen? What would you say your superpowers in the realm of child development are? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I guess I'll answer it um, you know, more from a professional lens. I think that I, I've spent my career really trying to bridge this research to um, practice um, gap that I think exists in a lot of places. So what I mean by that is, you know, I, I started, you know, in graduate school to really be fascinated by children's learning, how they learn language was specifically what I, what I studied in graduate school. And, but then taking that knowledge and, you know, really making it accessible and understandable to parents, to educators, um, early in my career, I worked with a lot of toy and technology companies. Um, at that time, it, it was not, um, I'm going to sort of date myself, but it was not common for little kids to be playing on iPads or iPhones and putting technology into toys was something new. And you had all these, you know, really talented designers and engineers that were working at these big tech companies, but they had no idea what, you know, what young children, you know, like to do, wanted to do would be educational for them. Um, and so I think I've, yeah, really dedicated my career and really always been fascinated by all this amazing developmental research that is, you know, being conducted and, you know, written up in journals, but that just stays in the academic world and it doesn't get out there, you know, to people who are interacting with children, you know, and raising children, um, and then people are creating experiences for children as well. So like, I guess I would consider that my superpower. Yeah, that bridge work is really important, um, especially I think in the realm of children. You know, academia is, is an adult arena, right? And so we're studying children in an academic lens, but how does that ever trickle down? So thank you for, for being the one to bring it to bring it down. That's really important. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So we are going to go to a quick break before we dive into this conversation. Before we go, will you two maybe share a little bit about, about your book and where people can, can find it and, and maybe just, just a little taste of how it came into being? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I can start. So um, the book is called um, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, and it was published by New Harbinger Publications. We're really fortunate to work with them. Uh, they're based in Oakland, California. And um, the book really came about, Rachel and I first met at the Bay Area Discovery Museum, um, which is in Sausalito, California. And we quickly bonded over our sort of passion and mutual interest uh, for developmental research and, and education and how to apply that in, in a classroom setting um, and in a museum setting. Um, and so, you know, we, you know, several years later, we then, you know, Ra Rachel came to me and, and said, we need to write a book about all these strategies that we used in the classroom. She used in the classroom, mainly she was the head of school at the Discovery School, which is the on-site preschool at the museum. And really just, um, you know, wanted to share all these tips and, and um, practices with, um, with parents and educators. And so that's what motivated us, I think, to, to write the book. And if I can piggyback on that for a moment. Um, so what Helen and I came to really see was that we had a lot of knowledge about child development and we could easily apply that. You know, I could take the research that Helen was working on creativity and we could spin that and turn that into an applied practice in our classrooms easily and effectively. And we had this incredible research team that could back us up and we could change and tweak some of the things that we could do so that we could study how effectively children could learn. And Helen and I both felt that 
while it was great that we were we were able to do this at a small scale, we really felt it was important, and, and we joke about it, we call it our civic duty, to let a larger audience know, especially parents, about how their child is developing. And so when they're working with their child, when they're asking their child to do something, that they understand the development of a child. And then in conjunction with that, they could then ease into parenting, knowing what their child is able to do and what's sort of developmentally appropriate. And so that's really another reason why this book came about. We just wanted to share with a much larger audience. I love that. Well, thank you for for writing it and thank you for joining us today. We are going to go to a quick break. We're talking with Rachel Katz and Helen Hadani about fostering emotional intelligence in pandemic era children. So we're going to dive in when we get back. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. I'm Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts. Are you ready to master your life? Are you looking for more calm and peace, connectedness in your relationships, more clear communication, guided thoughts, and a confidence in your ability to come up with creative solutions no matter what happens? Then join us at our next experience. Go to superpowerexperts.com and get signed up today. Okay, we're back. So I want to just sort of dive right in here and ask you both, what would you say are some of the most common things that after being, you know, in, in the world of this research seem like now second nature to you, but are really like most parents do not know going into parenting and in terms of child development. You want to start with that, Rachel, and I can fill in? Sure. Um, I think what's really important is that, oh, gosh, <laughs> to take a breath and really think about the best way to answer this. So one of the things that I think that parents don't really know is how a child's mind develops and what we call in the child development research world, the development of theory of mind. Um, I don't think that they know that it's a slow progression where a child is really um, from birth to around eight years old, really trying to understand and develop an awareness of how they are separate beings from the other people around them. Um, And I'll ask Helen to sort of support that with more research. Um, I also think that parents don't think about the importance of body language. Um, In addition to language development, we think that when our child is talking, that that is language development and that the impact Mm -hmm. that um, that language has is just on what we say. So theory of mind, language. And then I would say the other thing is executive function, um, just how long it takes for a child to really develop and hone and fine tune the skills of working memory, cognitive flexibility, um, and impulse control and how that relates to social and emotional development. So that's a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if I could hand over just one thing first to theory of mind for Helen to explain it, cause she does a great job of explaining theory of mind. We'll just start with that. And then we can sort of roll into some other things. Does that mm-hmm. sound okay? Sounds great. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about theory of mind. I mean, it's a term that, you know, people outside of academics or, you know, who don't study child development may or may not have heard before. But in the academic world, specifically in developmental psychology, it's a very, very um, popular and um, fruitful area of research. And so what it what it studies really is what what Rachel mentioned is how children and adults come to understand sort of our mental world. And by that meaning, how do we understand, you know, mental states like emotions and intentions and desires um, and beliefs and how all those come together to, to basically drive our actions and shape our interactions with other people, right? So to give an example from a developmental perspective, toddlers, so children around age two or even a little younger, maybe as young as 18 months, start to understand something pretty significant about desires, about what they like and what other people like. And so actually a pretty big development is children come to understand that while they may love, let's say, you know, goldfish crackers, right? Almost all kids love goldfish crackers. Other kids or adults may not like them. And that's like a pretty big deal, like a pretty big revelation to them. Right. Because they 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 have sort of this assumption. A lot of young children have the, the assumption that whatever they like is what what everybody else likes. I think a right. lot of adults actually are still holding right. that yes, assumption. That too, right. Right. So, yeah. So as, as Rachel said, it's it's a slow process and it continues not only throughout childhood, but I think also, yes, into adulthood in some cases, too. And so and then there's another big jump around the preschool age children come to understand something about our beliefs, like what we, you know, what we think is true or not true in the world and how that relates and drives our actions, right? So if we think our ball is in the garage, we're going to go look for it in the garage, right? But if our friend thinks it's in the house under the bed, they're going to go look there. Mm -hmm. And that again, is a pretty big, you know, something that we as adults, I think, take for granted, but for kids, this is something that they come to to learn and to develop in this, you know, in this time. So that's a little bit about, you know, what theory of mind and what researchers look at in terms of what children come to understand. And if I could just add one thing to that, if you fast forward to a school age child, and this is really important to think about a school, you know, a school age child, we're looking at someone who's like in early elementary school, at this age of development, they realize that the mind is always at work. So that when I can look at you and I see you, you might be thinking something and you have an inner world that's separate from my inner world. But it's very important to remember that a younger child, when they look at you and see you doing something, they don't necessarily think, oh, mom has an inner world. She might be busy washing the dishes and thinking. So therefore, I'm not going to, you know, scream at her and yell at her that I want something. <laughs> so it's important to remember, you know, and recognize that it takes a long time for a child to realize that the mind is always at work, even when you're just sitting still. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still working that one with my 10-year-old. <laughs> it's still a conversation that we have about interrupting. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to um, jump to something you were talking, the second thing you mentioned, Rachel, which was about the development of language and the importance of body language. Um, and I think to me that 
And, and I also, I'm, I'm really interested in opening up a little bit of a space here in terms of, you know, bringing in the, the pandemic part of the conversation, because something that I've observed and, and witnessed is just when, when we have fewer social interactions, like the children, there's just certain things that they're not getting, right. That used to just, we, again, used to just take for granted because, we would see each other all the time and we'd be hugging and and also the way that our body language relates to one another has changed since the pandemic, right? With distancing and everything. And um, I think a lot of people are holding a lot more tension and rigidity in their bodies around social interaction and engagement. Um, and so I would, I know there's not really like a, a, a specific question. I'm trying to distill a specific question to make it easier for you to answer, but um, I would just love to hear both of your reflections on what you've seen, how you've seen um, what's happened over the pandemic, how you've seen it impact um, children's language learning and also ability to sort of read social cues. Yeah, sure. I, I, I can start. I had a few thoughts as you were you know, talking, Tatiana. Um, so one thing is, it, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that we, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, Rachel and I wrote a blog for, for Brookings um, about face masks, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people, especially parents, were concerned that all everyone's face was covered by a mask. And so that, you know, makes it harder for everybody, not only children, but I think children in particular and young children who are, you know, learning language to read, you know, read people's facial expressions, and that could have an impact, right, on their, on their language development, right? And so yeah. I think what we, what we tried to do is, you know, we didn't want to alarm parents, we didn't want to say, like, you know, this, this is a horrible thing, and, and it's, you know, it's going to negatively impact your child's language development. Rather, we just wanted to say, you know, be aware that children, you know, again, not only pay attention to the words that are spoken, but they read people's facial expressions and body language. And there's much more to communication than just um, the words that you hear. Mm-hmm. Right? And so in that blog, we've provided tips for how to, you know, sort of work with children and talk to children, not make also, you know, not make it scary for people to be wearing masks to sort of normalize it more um, and just give them tips for how they can, you know, how their children can still, you know, be developing language in a world where people's half their face is covered. Right. And so I think that, um, you know, what we, what we've been learning through the pandemic is we've had, you know, everybody has had to adjust Mm -hmm. in how they um, interpret, right. Interpret other people's speech, spoken, spoken language, but also their body language. And I think, you know, you find as with so many other things, children are very resilient and very adaptable. And so in most cases, um, or in many cases, you know, children just have learned to, to, you know, see, see, you can't see someone smile, but you can see it in their eyes. For example, Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we wrote in the blog about too, right? Like you can sense, you can still read people's facial expressions. It's harder, much harder when you can't see, you know, the bottom part of their face, but you just learn again, learn to adjust in that, in that way. Yeah. And if I add on to that for, um, with, with what Helen is saying, so, you know, if we back up and we think about just language development in general. So you're a small child, let's say you're a baby, you're a toddler, you're an infant, you're not speaking yet. What you're doing is you're watching every cue around you and you're also listening to every sound 
And then eventually those sounds become words. And then those words become phrases. And then those phrases become a child realizes, oh, these words are labels for the things in my world. And they're also labels for the actions that I'm about to do and that others are about to do. And, and it becomes, it basically becomes communication. So language is really the bridge between self and other. So, and for a child, when you back up, the first part of language is body language, because most of the spoken language is kind of just random sound that they're trying to sort out. So they're working really, really hard watching people, watching the small facial expressions, and then also the large gestures that the whole body makes. So all of a sudden, we have these masks on, as Helen spoke to, and you know now you don't see the face; you just can watch the the eyes move. And so we were suggesting watch the whole body as well. Now, when you take a whole, when you get older children that can speak and use language, and then they've had pretty much a year of Zoom. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing platform. It's wonderful. But what it does is it's just a two. It's you're interacting two dimensionally only with a portrait. Right. So you're really missing. And there's also a lag because, you know, it's, it's, it's technology that's being fed. So you're not seeing action in real time. I think there's like a slight delay Mm -hmm. on like the smile. And so you're hearing sound and then you're seeing an action. So everything becomes a little bit delayed when it's not in real time. And you're also miss, you're also not sharing the same scene, the same space if you will. So you're just missing a little bit of those cues. So as as we move into sort of this post-pandemic time, I think children are doing really, really well. There might be a little bit more reluctance to like interact because it might feel a little odd. Like, how do I do this? It's kind of like you were riding a bicycle and then you stopped riding your bike for a year and then you get back on it and you're still, you remember how to do it, but it's a little bit, you're a little bit unsure. So it just takes some time. And I think one of the things that we mentioned in our book, you know, the emotionally intelligent child is we're reminding parents to make, to talk explicitly about children's feelings and the changes that they're experiencing and make it really explicit, you know, ask, is this odd for you to, um, you know, how's it going, you know, interacting with your friends? What's that like? What do you notice? Really talk about those things. And you can also share with your child some of the feelings that you might have about going back into the world and sort of trying to read and understand what people's intentions are through body language and through what they're saying. Because I think all of us are experiencing experiencing it a little. And when children know that their parents also are trying to adjust, it means the world to a child. Hmm. They don't feel so alone. I think that's really an important piece of information because I think a lot of parents try to hide that from their children because they they want to show up as the adult, as the one who has it all together, as the one who has it all figured out. I mean, you can show up as an adult by giving boundaries to kids, you know, and but you can also show up as an adult, as a feeling person that experiences, that senses feelings, that adjusts to 
the same kind of feelings that a child would feel, sadness, happiness, loneliness, confusion. That's really important. You know, that's never going to stop. You're still an adult in a child's in a child's world if you let them know how you're feeling, for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, emotional intelligence and and why it's important. Um, I think there's, you know, from the work that I do, I've seen a lot of adults are still trying to figure out the emotional intelligence piece and, and cultivating that. And so I know it can be challenging to teach children something that we're still learning ourselves. And I'm sure you both have some really great tips of how to do that um, as adults and sort of alongside your children and for your children and with your children. So I would just love to hear you share some of your wisdom around that. Helen, I'm thinking it might be a good time now to speak about executive function in relation to social and emotional intelligence. Yeah, no, I agree. I was thinking along the same lines. Okay. Yeah, I can start talking a little bit about it. And then, you know, maybe you you could fill in with more of the, um, you know, practice and, and, you know, some of the tips that we we offer in the book. Um, But yeah, one of the chapters in in our book is dedicated to executive function. And so, again, this is a term that probably a lot of people have heard, but, you know, may not really understand. And there's a good reason for that, because it's complicated. It's not so executive function skills are sort of a a range of skills that include things like self control, or inhibition, as some people may refer to it as cognitive flexibility, which is some people would may think is like sort of thinking outside the box, Mm -hmm. right, sort of really creative Um, memory or, or working memory sort of the part of your memory that um, really holds and manipulates information. And then a, a fourth one is like focus or attention, right? And so these are skills that sometimes um, are referred to as learning to learn skills, right? So there's these sort of foundational skills that especially for, for, for young children are sort of essential in many different contexts, but are often talked about in a sort of classroom academic environment, right? Because if you're a young child in a classroom and you can't you know, focus on what you're, you know, focus on the teacher or focus on, you know, what you're doing in front of you and have some self-control so you don't, you know, t- take the person's food next to you or, you know, hit the person next to you, right? Have some sort of inhibition or self-control. Um, you're, you're not going to be very successful in it. Or it's going to be really hard to be successful in that learning environment. But we talk about executive function in our book in relation to social and emotional development, because those executive function skills are also critical for social and emotional learning in terms of learning how to take turns, learning how to collaborate, learning how to participate in a conversation. You also need executive function skills. Um, And so it's sort of this key piece or this link that we wanted to make between this important area of executive function and social emotional learning that, at least in our experience, Rachel's and my experience, is that link or that relationship is not often made. Um, so yeah, so maybe I'll turn it over to Rachel now to talk about maybe how some, some of the sort of practical tips that we offer for parents and educators to boost children's executive function. Well, and thanks, Helen. And I want to just go back to Tatiana to your original question of like, just looking at social emotional intelligence and to remember that executive function, these skills 
you know, when you say, gosh, adults don't have a lot of these skills too. I mean, it's almost like we're all always on a path of development. Mm -hmm. Just human development is human development. So, you know, you'll, you'll hear these skills being taught in the workplace or being taught, you know, in, in couples, couples work and whatnot, or family dynamics, because this at any given moment, we have to always be working and refining these skills. And so, well, and I'm curious too, I'm just something coming up for me that I'm, I'm like, how much of this is brain development and how much of it is socialization that's culturally relevant? Because, you know, I, so I, my father was a Romanian, right? And I, I joke with people, oh, that's not totally a joke, but I say, you know, if, if people are going to visit Romania and they ask me, someone asked me like, what's the, what's one thing I need to know? I say, if you walk in a room and it sounds like two people are about to go to blows to each other, they're probably just talking about the weather. You know, that's just, that's just part of like the culture in Romania, like people are louder and they shout about things and it, and it's just more socially accepted. Um, as as there there's a there's a passion and a fire and 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 in in Western culture that's really not something that we do, and and so I'm thinking about you know like impulsivity and and that kind of thing and and how so yeah I, I'm I'm curious to hear your take on on how much of it is really like a developmental thing and how much of it is a societal cultural thing. I think it's absolutely both. So there's just a developmental progression that we as humans go through. And then within that progression, culture is going to impact everything. Mm -hmm. So, or I mean, most things. And then of course, there's the brain development, you know, and that's not our specialty, uh, Helen and our specialty. So we don't necessarily talk about that so much, but absolutely culture plays a difference. And so one of those things just in terms of emotional intelligence is just, we we call it helping children to understand what their emotional approach is, because we 100% recognize that, you know, you're the way that you're raised has a lot to do and the and the norms that you're taught and the practices that you're taught has a lot to do with what we call the microculture within your home and the sort of macroculture the society around you and you can't overlook that and so there's no right or wrong it's just every person has a different emotional approach and so you know we try not to sort of label things as good or bad um but just helping children to understand what are people's different emotional approaches. So like when they enter a room, you know, asking your child to pay attention to what's happening in the room around them. How are people talking to what, to your point, you know, are the voices raised? Are they not raised? If they are raised, then what are people talking about? Is there an argument or is it a, a joyful, you know, um, a conversation with raised voices? So helping children to just really attune to the environment around them is really um is something that's very helpful for them to understand emotional intelligence. Um, and then also, you know, as we, we talk about what's external and we also want to remind children what's internal. So what are they feeling inside of them? This notion that your message, 
that your body is going to send you a message too. You know, your body might have some tension in it, or it might feel some butterflies or something. And then noticing that that's going to have an impact on your emotional approach. And just also helping child to understand when you enter a space and you're interacting with others, that your mood is going to shift. And that maybe every day you have the same routine, but your mood might shift from day to day. And so to pay attention to that. So like, you know, maybe when I'm having breakfast every morning and getting ready to get on the school bus to go to school, I might today, I might be feeling really, really excited and really happy. And then, you know, yesterday I might have noticed, oh, I was a little bit more sad. So just helping children to really pay attention to what's going on within them and around them is super helpful for this sort of emotional approach. And then also with executive function, it's just teaching you a lot more about becoming more self-aware of what's happening around you and aware of what's happening, you know, in your environment, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, if that's helpful. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I was curious. I was pausing to see if Helen had anything she wanted to add to that or not. Oh, no, I mean, I, I mean, I completely agree with Rachel in terms of, yes, it's, it's definitely with, um, you know, a mixture of both, you know, your, your social experience and your cultural experience and, you know, human development. I mean, we, we do have a chapter in the book that talks about culture. We mainly focus on what we call family culture, right? So not, not so much maybe broadening to like cross-cultural differences, although obviously there's like whole books, you know, written about cross-cultural, mm-hmm. you know, development, but we, we decided to focus more on sort of like family culture, because even within that, there are just, you know, sort of lots of differences in terms of what families value and um, even what different parents value. And so we we definitely wanted to, um, you know, talk about in the book to, re- yes, as Rachel said, to remind parents that it's all happening in in a particular environment. All children are growing up in a particular environment and that influences um, you know, what they're observing, how they're observing it. And so just to be aware of that. And that's, that's where we also talk about, you know, as Rachel mentioned, sort of these emotional approaches and sort of having children be aware of those. So that helps them to hopefully, you know, more successfully interact with other, with other kids and other people. Yeah, I'm all for it. (laughs) So if there was one thing I know it's not always easy to distill down to one thing and usually it's many things, but say there was the one thing that someone listening to this today could go home right now and start to change that would really provide and foster greater emotional intelligence in their children. What would you say it would be? And there's two of you, so it can be different if it's it's different from each of you. Um. I'll, so I'll I'll offer one thing. I think one one tip that we offer in the book that is related to um, specifically to language development is, and I think Rachel referred to it earlier. It's like talking talking about emotions, right? So in everyday settings, so you know, it's not like you sit your kid down and you say like, okay, we're going to talk about emotions. You take you sort of take opportunity, look for opportunities when you're reading a book with your child, when you're watching a movie with them. Or even like when you go out to the park with them. So I think we give this example in the book. You go out to the park and you see there's another child that's really upset because they fell off the swing or they didn't get something they wanted. 
And you sort of, you know, lean over to your child and say, hey, you know, that little boy over there, you know, how do you think he's feeling? You know, so first you try and start this conversation so that you get your child to, to start talking about different emotions. And then you kind of keep going, you know, so maybe your child says, oh, he's feeling sad, you know, because he he fell off the swing. And then, you you know, you just kind of continue asking questions, you know, or, you know, why do you, or maybe the, your child just said he feels sad. Why do you think he might be feeling sad? Or how do you know, you know, how do you know he's feeling sad? Right. So you just want to sort of start these questions and keep the conversation flowing. And there's actual research showing that that when parents talk more, this is in a book reading setting, to talk more about emotions to their children, the children tend to be more helpful, what we call exhibit pro-social behaviors, right? So they're more likely than to be able to rush over to help somebody pick something up or offer, you know, a favorite toy to a child who they see is crying. Right? So there's actually research showing that when parents do talk more about emotions, then their children tend to be more pro-social. So that's one thing that I think is, you know, pretty, you know, just to keep in the back of your mind in everyday scenarios, again, reading a book, watching a movie, um, to talk about emotions with your child. Very cool. Thank you. Rachel, what about you? Um, I guess my, the one thing I would really want uh, parents to really know is don't be too hard on yourself. (laughs) Um, You know, I think parenting is, is a, it's just such a hard task. I mean, we learn, you know, we're still on our developmental (laughs) trajectory as, you know, as humans, and we're going through our own things and we're developing and changing all the time. And then we're tasked with having to, to raise and guide and be responsible for these, you know, wonderful, small humans, young humans, and it's a huge responsibility and a huge task. And so, be as kind to yourself as you can possibly be um, and know that there is no perfect parent out there. So it's just don't strive to be the perfect parent. And, you know, Helen and I wrote this book in two parts. So the first part is really about development. We wanted to talk about, you know, theory of mind, language, executive function and culture and the impact that plays on development. And the second part is we offer a framework to help you be as as compassionate to yourself and your child as possible. And we call it the MIND framework. And it has four components. We're using MIND as an acronym. So the first part being mindful, you know, just taking moments to learn and practice mindfulness so that you can pause between action and reaction or stimulus and response. You know, the second part, the I standing for inquire. Um, Instead of telling yourself, and your child what to do all the time, just sort of pulling back and reflecting and asking yourself, what could I have done different? Or what, or what is asking your child what they're experiencing? So just really nurturing and developing that relationship through inquiry with yourself and your child. And then the N is for non-judgment of just staying away from blame, shame, criticism, and judgment, because we all fall into that. Um, We can we fall into shame and blame patterns with the way we think we should raise our kids and then 
the way that we think we should be and not feeling adequate. And, um, and that just gets you into sort of this downward spiral that, you know, it, it can be hard. So with that whole non-judgment, stay away from shame as best you can. Of course, that's not easy to do, but, you know, notice that we all fall into that. And then the D is for decide where, if you're not feeling like you know how you want to respond to your child in this moment, you can actually say to your child, you know what, I want to respond or I want to talk to you. Or I want to answer this or I want to bring up this behavior, but I'm not really ready to talk about it yet. I'm going to come back to you and that take, you know, spend time with yourself to be as intentional as you need to be to think about how you want to respond to your child. Um, and so if that's the D for decide. So this mind framework, the we we say, you know, carry it in your back pocket, use it all the time. It was designed to for parents to use for themselves and then for parents to teach to their children so that you and your family have this framework that you can use together. And it's sort of your toolbox, if you will. So I would say the mind framework. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And thank you for, thank you for explaining that yeah. for us. And I, I do, it leads to a question around um, and, and I'm, guessing that you've come across this in your research, but what, what is the impact of shame? Cause shame, you know, generationally, right. Has been a very powerful and, and used heavily used tool for discipline. Yeah. Um, and what is the impact? And, and I think a lot of us who are parenting nowadays are, are sort of, you know, if, if we're not wanting to use shame and blame, we're, we're kind of, we're having to relearn how to parent differently because that maybe wasn't modeled to us. But sometimes I, I think knowing the research is helpful in changing behavior. And so I would love to just hear from you. What have you seen in your research that the impact of using shame and blame as a parenting tactic are on a child's emotional intelligence and development? Um, well, our research hasn't necessarily focused on shame and blame um, and sort of the research that we have been looking at. But one of the things that I would certainly suggest is that, yes, there are certain cultures that might use shame and blame. Um, but what we suggest is, is this whole idea of instead of telling and talking at, is that you pull back and you become curious about what it is that your child is doing. And instead of reacting to them right away with some type of, you know, saying something that then might feel as if they're being shamed or you're blaming them, you pull back and and start to ask about their behavior. So you you use questions and inquiry as a way to sort of understand what is the underlying root of some of that behavior and your child might then begin to tell you but if you 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 respond immediately with wanting to shame or blame then just naturally we all go into a sort of a defensive mm -hmm. place and when you go into that defensive place you you can feel that tension and that even in your body right and that the moment you feel that it's just sort of a natural reaction to want to protect yourself. So you're not going to be 
open to then a dialogue. But when you move into a space of curiosity and sort of wanting to understand the other person for their actions, just really, you know, very open-minded of, hey, tell me what's going on, then you you're not closing down. And then when and another person doesn't feel shut off and they don't feel like they have to defend themselves, then your child might have more of a chance to just say, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. And then you can go, oh, yeah, that's it. You know, you're reacting this way, but really it's coming from a completely different place. Yeah. And I found actually to parents listening that that can sometimes even just be an internal process. Like I don't always have to ask the questions out loud to my child. Sometimes it's really helpful for me to slow down my reaction if I start to ask what else might be going on here. And then it opens the doorway. And then I can ask my child in a, from a non-reactive place. Um, but I have found that to be an incredibly helpful tool in just slowing down, you know, because we because we're all humans and parenting is stressful and we get triggered, you know, and and so being able to to approach our children more from that place of inquiry, I think is really powerful. Absolutely. That was so well said. And that's where that whole, that M for mindfulness comes in of just that whole idea of when you're feeling that tension to do whatever you need to do to just pause and give yourself space before you react. And then to go, once you're feeling that kind of calm place where you're ready to then ask yourself the questions, then you can do some of that self-inquiry. And as you said, you don't even have to talk to your child. You can just sort of pull back and ask yourself, okay, I'm together now. What's going on? What do I, you know, what do I need to explore? And then it, you just immediately, you know, you're shifting from that place of, of, of reaction to responsiveness. Well, cause sometimes too, the child doesn't know, like sometimes, sometimes it's cause they didn't have a nap or they are hungry, you know, and it's not necessarily a logical thing. That they're going to be able to tell you right? Like why they're upset or what's why they're acting out. Sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with the the toy in the moment or whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You go on, Helen. No, I mean, we, we when you said that, Tatiana, I mean, we, we do, um, we have a part in the book. It reminded me of a part in the book where we say, you know, yeah, parents often have to do some little, be like to do detective work, right? Mm-hmm. Like they their, their child, yes, often, especially young children, have a hard time explaining like why they're feeling a certain way. And so really thinking about, well, what what is it that your child, you know, might be needing at this time? And yeah, doing, a, you know, just a little thinking and backtracking. I was like, okay, what ha- what else happened today? And what what's different about today than, you know, than yesterday? And trying to just really, yeah, be, we say sometimes, I think, like, be more of an observer of the experience versus being like a, a player in it, right? So like pull, like you said, pulling back and it's really hard to do, right? Mm-hmm. Because like in the moment, your your natural instinct, you know, human instinct is to respond, right? But in, yeah, in many situations, if you just take that moment and really start asking yourself like, okay, what's really, what's going on here? Like, why is my child acting this way? And, you know, what, yeah, what, what can I do to, you know, sort of help the situation? And, and, and as Rachel said before, it's a lot about asking versus telling, um, I think is a big point that we, that we make in the book. And to Helen's point about um, the whole, you know, asking what does my child need being a detective one of the things that we were really um, 
wanted to do in the book was to use a lot of infographics so that parents Mm -hmm. who didn't have a lot of time to read could also just learn a lot from our infographics. And we have this great table that um, talks about, you know, going into that detective work and we offer five, you know, five um, things to consider just from needs-based sort of communication with your child like is it something physical that is bothering them you know do they want is do they want some type of power are they feeling like a lack of independence you know are they craving belonging or do they want fun is there freedom that they're wanting so you know those are we have that a, a really nice table in the book where you can do some detective work and it's it's laid out pretty well and it's it's pretty fun and it offers some places to start thinking about you know, inquiring and asking yourself those questions. I, I love, I love that. Um, you know, are, are they looking for freedom or or agency? Because I think sometimes, you know, oftentimes they'll want to do something that you know the answer is no. But I love that question because then it invites. Well, how can I create some space to give them a sense of freedom or a feeling of agency? Absolutely, so well said. Yeah, a lot of times our children respond because what they're looking for is agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you're so small and everyone's telling you what to do all the time, you know. <laughs> and also they learn through cause and effect. I mean, they learn through their experiences. So it's like, oh, come on, let me just try this out, please. Right. This is how I'm going to learn. <laughs> you know, like well, a child pleading to a parent. <laughs> I'm I'm looking at the time and I feel like I could talk to you both for hours. There's so much that we didn't even touch on or have the time to touch on. And you both are are fascinating and wonderful. And I just want to thank you so much for, for the work that you're doing in the world and, and for your book Um, and tell us, you know, I'm assuming people can, can go out and find it wherever books are sold. Oh yes, definitely. Yep. On Amazon, Target, all the big box stores. And then also, um, again, New Harbinger Publications also has it on their website for sale. Um, So thank you. We really appreciate um, the time with you and and appreciate the work you're doing as well. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you Yeah. Yeah. It's just been a pleasure to spend this hour with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. And to our listeners, thank you so much for continuing to tune in and and use it. The best gift that you could give me is to actually use this stuff that we're putting out on this show. Um, This is for you and for our children. So until next time, reclaim your parenting journey as a sacred one for yourself, for your children, and for the world. Many blessings. Thank you for listening to the Superpower Network. Go now to superpowerexperts.com to unlock your superpowers and change your life today.